Hey, y'all. In trying to find an episode topic, I discovered two super interesting facts that are central to this episode. The first is that in the years between 1888 and 1930, Black people created and ran over 100 banks in America for Black people. The second is that one of these banks opened in 1903 was the first bank ever to be headed by a Black woman. This episode is both about the legacy of Black-owned banks and the St. Luke Bank, started by Maggie Lena Walker. Now, to tell this story, I have on with me Professor Shanae Garrett-Scott of Ole Miss, whose book, Banking on Freedom, is all about Black banking, with a specific focus on Black women banking in telling the story of St. Luke Bank. So welcome to my show. Thank you for having me, Brooklyn. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. One of the themes that we got into on the show pretty early, around the second episode, was the fact that a lot of current Black behavior can be explained by our history. And one of those things that the book Banking on Freedom gets into super, super early is why Black people distrust banks, because Black people are a little weird about banks, which makes a lot of sense when you realize that historically, banks actually distrusted Black people first. Since emancipation, banks have just treated Black people as if they don't know how to use money. Let's start with how banks have been treating Black people since freedom. Yes, well, I think a good place always to start is with the Freedmen's Bank. So right after the Civil War, the United States government chartered a bank for Black people, and it was called the Freedmen's Bank and Trust Company, but the nickname for it is the Freedmen's Bank. And this bank was set up by politicians and Northern reformers with the idea that they needed to teach newly freed Black people how to save the value of money and thrift, and that these kinds of values were really an important first step in African-Americans understanding or being qualified for citizenship. But the problem with the Freedmen's Bank, well, there was a lot of problems with the Freedmen's Bank. The first one was that all of the trustees, all of the people who organized the bank, almost all of the people who worked in the bank in its earliest years were all white people. Because no one trusted that African-Americans knew how to handle money or were sufficiently intelligent or talented enough to pick up something as complicated and important as finance and banking. Another problem with the Freedmen's Bank is that the deposits were not protected. In most banks in that day, they didn't have the kind of deposit insurance that we have today. So everyone was taking a gamble whenever they put their money into a bank. But the thing is that the close relationship between the federal government and the Freedmen's Bank really in the minds of African-Americans made them feel that the government was going to protect their assets. And then another problem with the Freedmen's Bank is that it didn't really, in many ways, respect its customers. It had had these assumptions that African-Americans didn't know the value of work because of slavery. And so the early bank really restricted or tried to restrict how Black people could use the money that they put in the bank. But African-Americans were not unbanked. 
even enslaved people were conversant with the market economy. They understood banking. They even had bank accounts, some informal banks, some informally that they kept with individual bankers. Sometimes they're enslavers and free black people, people who weren't enslaved or who bought themselves out of slavery, put their money in banks. They also acted as informal bankers for other free black people in their communities. And they also invested in banks. They bought bank stock. So these assumptions about African-Americans facility with money were kind of baked in to the Freedmen's Bank. But then the last point that I just want to make is that even with all of those hurdles, African-Americans really did embrace the Freedmen's Bank. They really did see banking, saving, being able to buy land, to educate their children, to maybe pass on wealth to their grandchildren after their death and children after their death, that these were really important values to African-Americans. And so they utilized the bank, even though the bank didn't quite trust them as customers. And then the fallout with the Freedmen's Bank, another reason why Black people (laughs) would distrust banks. So we were talking about how There was no insurance on their money and that money was, it ended very shadily. Yeah, really what happened is that you had the white trustees who really squandered the money that mostly African-Americans put in the Freedmen's Bank. And we're talking about millions and millions of dollars. The equivalent of nearly $2 billion passed through the Freedmen's Bank in the nearly 10 years that it was in operation from 1865 to 1874. And toward the last few years of the bank, some financiers were able to convince the politician to kind of change the rules of the bank which allowed these really unscrupulous whites to use the Freedmen's Bank like their own personal piggy bank. And they diverted the tens of millions of dollars of African-Americans' hard-earned money into these really sketchy real estate deals, railroad deals. One of the biggest culprits was this company called the Cook Brothers in New York. And there was really no oversight of the bank by the politicians or the reformers. So by the time it became pretty clear that the bank was on its last legs, the government kind of scrambled to try to win back African-Americans' trust. They even hired Frederick Douglass to become the president of the Freelance Bank. And he invested $10,000 of his own money as a way to try to encourage African-Americans to support the bank. But when he got a chance to look at the books, he saw that there was no saving the bank. So very shortly after he became president, he had to deliver the sad news that the bank had to close. And so African-Americans struggled for years, far into the 20th century, trying to get some part of their lost deposits. So over 66,000 people lost their deposits when the bank closed in 1874. So definitely that made a lot of African-Americans distrustful of the banking industry. Of course, at the end of the 19th century, well into the 20th century. But I do have to say that what that did really was it convinced them that it was really important that they have institutions that they controlled. And so the failure of the Freedmen's Bank, even though it did kind of cast a bitter taste in African-Americans' mouths, it also spurred them to create these other vibrant Black-owned financial institutions 
And this wasn't just a couple banks. Black people created so many different financial institutions across the country for themselves. So the first Black bank was started in 1888. And between 1888 to the Great Depression, African-Americans started over 100 banks, thousands of thrifts, savings and loans, building and loans, industrial loan associations, thrift clubs, rotating credit associations. So there was this really vibrant and dynamic Black financial network that spread all across the United States in the shadow of the Freedmen's Bank. Now, to get into the development of Black banks, especially the one that's central to this episode, the one started by a Black woman, St. Luke's Penny Savings, I want to roll back to the way that Black people weren't unbanked and had developed their own ways to save money and to get loans and to care for each other, because that's actually what St. Luke's Bank grew out of. Back before there were Black banks, there were Black mutual aid societies and Black secret fraternities that existed to help Black communities take care of each other. These societies and fraternities often existed to give death benefits and sickness benefits to Black families, basically providing life insurance. And this story starts with the Grand United Order of St. Luke and also the vibrant city of Richmond, Virginia. Yes. And actually, it starts with the first Black-owned bank. The first chartered Black bank was the True Reformers Bank, which also started in Richmond, because after the war, Richmond, Virginia kind of emerges as the cradle of Black capitalism. So that's where you have the first chartered Black bank. You have the first formal insurance company. You have one of the earliest, probably the earliest, Black Wall Street, this dynamic Black enclave where with newspapers, barbershops, jewelry stores, any kind of service or business you can imagine, you have Black-owned merchants and proprietors providing those services to Black consumers, kind of begins in Richmond. And so the True Reformers Bank started from a mutual aid, a secret society, which was the True Reformers, the grand fountain of the True Reformers. I love the really fancy, wonderful names that they had, Sisters of the Mysterious Tens and the Knights and Daughters of Tabor and Knights of Pithy. They have some awesome names. And so the very first Black-owned woman's bank was the St. Luke's Bank. And that grew out of the Independent Order of St. Luke, which by 1899 was headed by Maggie Lena Walker. And she had a bold vision about Black women and economic empowerment, self-sufficiency, community building that really put Black women at the center. So she really understood from her own life experiences. She grew up poor. She always said, I was born not with a silver spoon in my mouth, but with a wash basket upon my head. So she really understood how important working Black women were to their families, because most Black women worked to support their families, but also to communities, because it was African-American women who not only were helping to fund and run schools, nurseries, hospitals, churches, these vital institutions in Black communities. And she really respected that. And so a few years after she became president, she kind of announced this bold vision. She said, let us have a bank. You know, let us put our nickels and our dimes and pennies together and have them work for the good women that are here 
here, meaning in the independent order of St. Luke, but here in Richmond, here in the United States. And so in 1903, her dream became a reality. St. Luke's Penny Savings Bank became the first bank that was largely financed by Black women, that was largely run by Black women, and that was headed by a Black woman, the very first Black woman bank president, Maggie Lena Walker. And this bank survived into the 21st century and over 100 years. The bank changed its name over time. So it went from the St. Luke's Penny Savings Bank to the St. Luke's Bank and Trust. And then during the Depression, it consolidated with some other banks that were struggling to save those banks. And its name changed to Consolidated Bank and Trust. And that bank survived well into the 21st century. So the St. Luke's Penny Bank that was started in 1903 finally closed amid the subprime mortgage crisis in 2013. So when it closed, it was the longest running black control bank in the country at that time. And that was a bank that was started by and financed by black women. It's such a good story. It is. (laughs) (laughs) I guess a good place to start is the day it opened. Because it was a penny savings place, people brought what they could. And that was often Pennies. Some people brought pennies to open up their accounts. And what was so important about Megalina Walker's vision is that she didn't just encourage women, but she also encouraged children. So she allowed children to start their own bank account. Her grandchildren did. There were other young children who did. And and she also encouraged savings and financial literacy among children as well. She was really well known for having these little circular metal banks and they would hold dimes. And so the children would put their dimes in this bank. They couldn't open the bank. And after they had amassed 10 dimes, a dollar, they could come to the bank, St. Luke's bank, and they would break open that bank and open an account for them with the dimes that they had saved in their bank. And another really important role St. Luke's Bank played in the community, another part of Megalina's vision of this self-empowerment was property and business ownership. So she really made it easy for African-American women to buy their own homes, to buy property, not just in Richmond, but all around the country, because the Independent Order of St. Luke was an organization that at its height had 100,000 members spread across 28 states. In my book, I say 26, but I've learned since then that they have a couple of extra. And she was world renowned being the only African-American woman bank president. And so her work in terms of helping African-Americans, especially African-American women, own property and save money, write wills, pass wealth along uh, intergenerationally is really super important. And then the other thing that's also important is that she also understood that money alone wasn't enough really to give African-American women the power that they needed. So she also was very politically active. She definitely encouraged the passage of the Women's Suffrage Amendment. And then as soon as it passed, she really kicked into high gear, registering thousands of African-American women, probably could have registered more, except that Virginia, of course, did everything in its power to try to keep African-American women from voting. She ran for office. She was involved in national organizations like the Urban League, the NAACP, 
the National Negro Bankers Association. So she was really active about not just pushing for these kind of economic rights, but also social justice issues. So for her, economic justice was the real empowerment, the real kind of social empowerment. Yeah, yeah. There's more I want to talk about with the social justice aspect, but also this bank opens and its whole ideology is that it wants to be empowering in Black communities, which even considering Black people, especially Black women for loans and bank accounts is just completely different than the way finance ever worked. So they had to approach determining risk and giving credit very differently than any other banks. And the way they did it was super interesting. So I do want to talk about that. Yeah. And I think that really the way Maggie Lena Walker and her staff, some of trusted women on her finance committee, the way they approached ideas about lending was really important. And I think some important lessons for us today. So not only was Maggie Lena Walker kind of fighting against racism, she was also fighting against sexism as a Black woman. And so there were these assumptions that people had about African-Americans, that they were lazy, that they wouldn't work without being forced, that they were irresponsible with money, that they were inherently criminal. So there were these kinds of negative stereotypes and associations that made insurance companies and banks and other kinds of financial institutions see African-Americans as particularly risky. This kind of helped some institutions like insurance companies because when some of the major insurance companies refused to cover African-Americans or would cover, say, the most wealthy African-Americans, but charge them exorbitant prices for cut rate benefits. So this was an opportunity for that Black financial sector to grow, to provide these kind of services for African-Americans, but also women were also seen as emotional and irrational when it came to money. And so when you put together the kind of unique challenges that Black women faced because of racism and because of sexism, Megan Lena Walker was really faced with some challenges about how to put forth her vision of helping African-American women borrow money, use credit, grow their financial literacy within an industry that saw them as existentially risky, as existential risks is one of the, uh, what the things I say, you know, in my book. So what she did was she refused to believe and accept those kinds of assumptions and stereotypes about African-Americans. But she did have to keep the bank's doors open. She had to figure out some kind of way to judge credit worthiness. So one of the ways she did that was that she kind of mapped the bank's practices onto the kinds of everyday financial practices that Black women were used to. So the kinds of credit options that were available to Black people and Black women in particular at that time were things like going to a pawn shop was a quick way for them to get money when they really, really needed it. They also got credit at stores, grocery stores and clothing stores that they went to. And then they also haggled with people who were selling stuff on the street. So Maggie Lena Walker really had the bank mirror the kind of everyday 
credit and economic practices. So, for example, she would keep the bank open late and late on the weekends. Why? Because African-American women, many of them were domestics or they worked in factories and they got off of work late. And if she stayed open late, this was a way for them to be able to come in and do their banking at times that were convenient for them. She also created loan programs where they could borrow small amounts of money a five or $10 loan, she was willing to do a loan that small so that women didn't have to go to pawn shops with really exploitative rates and terms that they could come to the bank. So she made banking uh, really respectable. And she also used the values of the Independent Order of St. Luke, their values, their practices to kind of help them figure out how to underwrite the larger loans. So people who wanted loans for their businesses or people who wanted to buy a home, she used the kinds of standards that her organization, the Independent Order of St. Luke, had used for decades. And she kind of refined those and used them in the bank. So the reason that I say that those practices would really work for us today is because, well, we saw how with the subprime mortgage crisis that black and brown people were really blamed for that crisis. And people kind of had in their minds that, speaking of African-Americans in particular, that they just weren't quite ready for home ownership, for the responsibilities of home ownership. And so the kind of risky financial products that were peddled to them, people kind of saw those as these ghetto loans that these ghetto type people would take out. But now we have COVID. We're coming out of COVID, hopefully. And so there has been an economic crisis that cuts across class, across race, across the country. And so when we come out on the other side, you're going to have people who lost their jobs, people who have been late on their mortgages, been late on their rent, been late on their credit cards. And so how now are we going to figure out people's credit worthiness? And a way for us to do that is to try to get past the kinds of credit and underwriting practices that banks have been using in the past, many of which have inherent racist and gendered biases in them, and look to the everyday way that people use credit. So if you tie that church regularly, that is something that banks could consider as evidence of your credit worthiness. If you have been able to put a little money aside when you pay your pay your rent on time, or you have a certain amount of money left over after you pay all your bills, there are a lot of other ways other than credit scores to try to figure out people's credit worthiness. And I think it's looking at these kinds of common sense, more practical ways of assessing risk will be really important for us post-COVID. And so I think that the St. Luke Bank is a really good model for how to still make money, how to still be responsible, but to meet people where they are in order to empower them and to help them fulfill their idea of the American dream. That makes so much sense. Because I mean, it's never made sense to me that like to get credit, you have to borrow money. But if that's not what you're doing, but you're like consistently paying your tithes at church or just it makes sense to judge credit by how people actually use money day to day. Exactly. 
And also, it is time for the banks to admit that those credit scores, so the FICO score, for example, they like to pretend that it's completely neutral, that it doesn't take race into account. But so many studies have shown that that simply is not true. Even I'm thinking about work by people like Devin Fergus, for example, who's shown that your zip code, where you live, means that you would pay higher premiums on your insurance, what they call the ghetto tax. So these ideas that these kind of measures that banks have been using, that they've not had an inequitable effect on black and brown and poor and working class people is really just a farce. It's it's really a lie. And I think that they should kind of admit the inherent limitations of the way they've been doing business. And then I also will add that I think that they also need to take responsibility for creating many of the situations that they use as excuses not to lend to black and brown people. So I'll say this, for example, a bank may say, oh, well, you know, Brooklyn, we would love to do this loan for you, but the home prices in the area of town that you live in are just not up to par. Your home is appraising for less than what it is that you want to borrow. But as we discussed just a couple episodes ago, in episode 10, this is a result of over 100 years of conscious decision-making. Developers created segregated suburbs, which left Black, Brown, and poor people in separate neighborhoods that banks and the federal government then could redline and not invest credit and money into, unless, as they have in the last 60 years, they were practicing predatory lending. And then to come back 50, 60, 70, 100 years later and say, oh, well, we can't give you any money because this isn't a quote unquote good neighborhood or it's too risky for us when they created in many ways the kind of quote unquote risky situation that they now use in this excuse not to give you your money, Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one of the things I did want to talk about is back in the Black Feminist Movement episode, we saw that even though America really insists that like men have to be the head of the household and breadwinners, Black women have always had an economic role in their families and have always handled money and raised funds. Like in those mutual aid societies you talk about in the book. Yeah, definitely. And they also were parts of other clubs as well. So there was a whole club woman movement that involved these kind of social reform clubs, social clubs and lyceum kind of self-improvement kind of clubs, church societies, in addition to these mutual aid societies. And it's also important to remember that African-American women usually have always had to work. On the one hand, it's always been expected that they would work. So even after slavery ended, the media, the white press, for example, really attacked Black families and also planters in particular because some women wanted to stay home and take care of their families. And many whites believe that Black women should be out working. And this kind of model of the male breadwinner head of household was something that was really kind of imposed on Black families, especially after the Civil War, because there were so many different types of family units. You know, you had extended family, you had 
some families where maybe two completely unrelated families would come together to help take care of children or to provide for each other. So you had all these really dynamic versions of Black families that had worked and thrived in slavery. But after the Civil War, in order to get certain benefits, and of course, you have criticism with the rise of racial eugenics and science that are really criticizing African-Americans for their diverse family forms. And so many African-Americans do in this politics of respectability begin to kind of argue for this male breadwinner head of household kind of model. But the truth is that many Black families tended to be a little bit more egalitarian because African-American women work. They contribute to the economic survival of the families and that they were out there raising money for these key institutions. And even when it comes to Black business, in my new work, I'm talking about Black business just in general, Black capitalism, and African-American women were even really important there. Black businessmen Groups like the National Negro Business League also touted this idea that Black men should own businesses and run businesses. But African-American women became really essential because, one, they also ran and started their own businesses, but also they really mobilized to try to help support African-American male-owned businesses. And I do have to say that even within these mutual aid and fraternal and secret societies, some African-American women also had to really work and fight for recognition. So the Independent Order of St. Luke was an organization that almost from its beginning had men and women in it. But many fraternal organizations were male fraternal organizations that had women auxiliaries. But as these women auxiliaries began to raise incredible amounts of money, were running their own insurance programs for widows and children. They clashed with their brother organizations and they had to wrestle even with Black men for control over their kind of economic destinies. So again, we have to always remember that African-American women are really fighting racism and sexism. And part of that sexism that they sometimes have to battle is also against African-American men. That's a lot of what my Black Feminism episode was about. Back to the social justice thing. St. Luke's and just all of the banks in Richmond were attacked a lot as part of a widespread kind of disenfranchisement campaign in Virginia. And St. Luke's fighting back. It wasn't just about keeping the bank open. It was about fighting against this disenfranchisement. Definitely. So Magdalena Walker, she is so reminiscent of Ida B. Wells Barnett. Ida B. Wells Barnett was one of the kind of earliest people to put together the kind of interlocking oppression. So she understood, for example, lynching was not just about Black men were being lynched because they were raping white women. She understood that economic dimension, that many of the people who were targeted for lynching were Black people who were economically successful, African-Americans who were either trying to organize sharecroppers and other farmers or workers, that there was this kind of economic element and lynching was used as a form of kind of racial domestic terror against economically independent or economically assertive. African-Americans. And Magdalena Walker was similar to her in linking the seemingly race-neutral attacks by regulators, bureaucrats, with the 
encroachment on Black voting rights. She saw its connection to segregation. She saw its connection to disenfranchisement. She saw its connection to economic exploitation. And she put all of those together. And so the book talks about how there was this really kind of vibrant period in the late 19-noughts, in the 19-teens, where St. Luke Bank was fighting on every side. And they were fighting against these kinds of new regulations that were coming into being, because this is the period in which Jim Crow is really maturing, uh, not just as a set of cultural practices, but also as a set of laws and statutes. And so she sees these kinds of attacks on the autonomy and freedom and the banking practices of Black banks in conjunction with attacks on Black voting rights, on segregation of streetcars and public accommodation, threats of sexual violence and harassment against Black women. So she links all of those things together and they really inform her activism. And so the Independent Order of St. Luke, coupled with the bank, are able to really mobilize Black Richmonders and people around the country to really pay attention to these attacks, not just on Black individuals, but on Black institutions and Black businesses. And some people are successful. St. Luke Bank ends up being able to kind of weather the storm, but in other places, it's far more difficult. So I'm also working on some work about banks in Mississippi. And Mississippi, surprisingly, had, they were kind of neck and neck with Virginia in terms of the numbers of Black banks. At their height, they had 12 banks operating in Mississippi, which is just an unheard of number. So Virginia had 11, 12 at different times. But then the next states after that, they were lucky if they had two banks in the whole state. So to have 12 banks in a place like Mississippi was like really important. But with the efforts of their new banking laws that come in the 19 teens, only two banks, really one bank survives after legislatures and bureaucrats kind of have their way with kind of getting rid of these Black banks. And people like Maggie Lena Walker were right to defend Black banks because attacks on Black banks and closures of Black banks truly had ripple effects throughout Black communities. Black banks are like really important, not just because they are providing this kind of economic stimulus and development to Black communities, but also because many of the people who are connected to the bank, people who head the bank, the board of directors are often people who are also politically active. They're also linked to other important Black businesses. So when you close a Black bank, not only do you take away access for farmers, for example, to escape sharecropping by getting reasonable terms, you're also undermining Black businesses that need Black banks for credit. You're undoing Black insurance companies that keep their money in Black banks. So when you close Black banks, they can't pay their insurance claims and and they end up closing. And then also you have people who are politically active. And so this is an incredible way attacking Black banks and Black financial institutions to kind of do a one, two, three punch. And you're also able to dismantle a lot of Black achievements politically socially and economically. Yeah. Actually, when I read that part of your book, it made me think a lot about another episode that I did about COVID 
on that episode, it came up the way that black medical schools were attacked in a very similar way where for them, it was standardization. And in the case of these black banks, it was like oversight and regulation. And in both cases for the banks, it was just demanding that these banks have and do more than a black bank, which got most of its money from the black working class and some black middle class people could ever attain. It was asking for them to have big reserves of money with black medical schools. It was asking them to get a bunch of expensive equipment they couldn't afford. And because they couldn't keep up with this standardization, with this regulation that was technically colorblind, it wiped a lot of them out. Yeah. So there are these structural disadvantages that especially black financial institutions and medical schools and black hospitals too are working under. And so these regulations come in and like they claim to be like, we're not even talking about race. We're talking about protecting consumers, but they are asking of these institutions things that are really difficult because they have been so impaired by racism. So you mentioned the reserves. So one of the things that Magdalena Walker tried to fight against was, for example, they tried to put these limits on how much a bank could lend based on how much it had in its coffers, which, I mean, that kind of makes a lot of sense. But when you are working with a group of people who don't make a lot of money and who are really dependent on loans and credit to make ends meet, Yeah, these small banks, even though they have savings in their names, are really doing a lot of lending. And so when you limit the amount of lending that they're able to do, then you are taking one of their most vital lines of business away from them. Magdalena Walker wanted to continue to work with youth and juveniles, but the new laws said, no, you can't do that. She tried to work around it because she really felt that Young people, many of whom were working, they needed to learn how to take care of their money and how to invest. Sometimes these insurance policies, for example, are one of the earliest kinds of investments that African-Americans have. And so a state law that now says that you cannot sell these kinds of products or have these kinds of services for children is an attack upon the very kinds of practices that Black communities and families are relying on to build wealth in their communities. But it is an issue I think that we face today when you think about the fact that there are maybe about two dozen-ish minority banking institutions really active today. That's why you have the kind of the Bank Black movement. And the Bank Black movement is all about encouraging everyone to put a little bit of their money in Black banks because Black banks argue that instead of participating in practices like predatory lending, they have continued to have an activist role in building up Black communities and Black businesses with a lot fewer resources than most major banks. The website bankblackusa.org is a way to learn more about this movement and tap into it. And remembering that Black people, including a woman named Maggie Lena Walker, have built their own banks because of the way existing banks treated them. The bottom line is... Black banks still matter. Yes. Thank you so much, Professor, for coming on my show. Thank you so much for having me, Brooklyn. I found the innovation and persistence of St. Luke's Bank through racism and sexism on every side for over 100 years. So incredible. The link to Banking on Freedom is in the show notes, as is the link to bankblackusa.org. You can check both of those out. And as always, the best thing you can do for this show is share it if you like it. And at We the Black People Pod is on Facebook and Instagram. All power to all people, y'all. <laughs>